and welcome to Talent Equals. I'm your host, William Leightonen, and if this is your first time to the Talent Equals podcast, welcome. And uh, if you're returning, welcome back. We really appreciate it. In this episode, our guest is Stephen Mendel. Stephen is the CEO of Bought by Many, who are one of the true success stories of the insure tech scene. But in fact, you may not know them as an insure tech, and we'll explore that a bit in this episode with Stephen. And I wanted Stephen on the show to talk about Bought by Many because I've been observing their journey over the years. And what is clear is there's been a process of evolution. It's a gradual yet definite process of focus. And it's actually here on this topic of focus that I'm directing the conversation today. Focus is a very important topic for all newly established companies. Um, I suppose actually for all companies, in fact. Bought by many, though, has shown that focus doesn't have to mean losing out. It can, in fact, mean gaining. You know, since Bought by Many have focused down on pet insurance, they've grown to over 200 staff. They've expanded from the UK into Sweden and now into the US. In their latest C round of funding, they secured £78 million from FTV Capital. And most importantly, they've received yet another award for Pet Insurance Provider of the Year in 2021 from MoneyFax Consumer Awards which is evidence that what they're doing is working in serving their customers. Talent Equals as a journey, as a podcast, is all about figuring out what makes talent. And Stephen and I talk about the importance specifically of values in creating the culture that supports the talented people that they have bought by many. And we get into why a diverse talent pool is so important and how, frankly, you have to make deliberate efforts to create a diverse workforce when you identify the need. It's a really fun discussion with Stephen. We cover a lot about how you create a company, how you sort of go through the process of tuning that through to the people that you hire. Um, and we really get into some of the things I think that are make bought by many successful. Because I, I would say that I think Stephen really understands something very important. It's that importance of staying focused on the things that matter. And what matters is creating the right environment for the bought by many employees so they can serve their customers and the customers' pets that are so very important. And so without further ado, I give you Stephen Mendel. So, Stephen, today's show, I wanted to talk a bit about focus with you. Um, as the CEO of Bought by Many, I suppose my question to you, kind of to kick off the show, is sort of what is what is it about focus that's been helpful for you in building Bought by Many? So, it's an interesting question. I think that the best way for me to describe the success, I think it's success that we're having right now, is to explain that until four years ago, 
we were offering a very large range and wide variety of insurance products. Uh, and over the subsequent two years, we narrowed down from this very wide range, initially to pet, to travel and to SME insurance, uh, and now exclusively to everything in and around the pet space. I don't describe that as a pivot because we were always doing it, um, but I'd, we just stopped doing other things. So I describe it as having a greater and greater focus on the area where we think we can have the biggest impact uh, and where we can uh, change the market expectation the most. So hearing that, so you, you by many had a wide range of solutions that you originally offered in, in the insurance area, and then you started focusing down on this element of what you already were doing. So that sort of talks to me a bit about, you know, maybe a, a concept that many people have misconception they have in mind about building businesses that you start out with a laser like premise on exactly what you want to do. And that's it. So how did you how hard was it for you to go from, you know, doing more to, to doing less? Very hard, because I'm not very good at saying no. One of the easier things for us was that because we were growing so fast, the headcount implication of doing less was negligible because everybody was able to find a new role or everyone bar two were able to find a role doing other things that were in and around their skill set, but just in the pet space. So that, that brings to mind like the process that you have to go through. Cause I don't suppose it was like a, a Friday afternoon meeting where you guys just went, hey, Look, let's drop everything else. Let's focus on pet insurance. That's the thing. Yeah, because there's, there's a lot of people who've got to get involved. You've got to, you know, even though you're a smaller firm, 100 odd people plus, you've still got to move that team. How did that process happen? What was it like? Yeah, so so you're right. I mean, at, at that time, I think we were actually less than 170, okay. 75, something like that mm. at, uh, at the end of 2008 when this decision took place. It was a it was something that felt inevitable. Um, it had a certain a certain degree of of reality for us, so that it wasn't it wasn't actually the toughest decision on the planet. Uh, I often say that the hardest decisions are actually the ones that make themselves, and this very much felt like that. So our pet business was growing incredibly fast. Uh, the customer satisfaction levels were were frankly far exceeding our expectations and so our ability to 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 narrow down and to focus was very very easy it was a very straightforward decision and i remember the board meeting in december of, of 2018 where we said to the board you know we've been talking about this for some time but this feels like feels like the right time to do it and it was a very easy conversation to have at the board because Everyone was expecting it to happen. It was just an intuitively, it was intuitively the right thing to do at that point. Mm. So, so when you say intuitively, intuition, interestingly, is built on a set of learned behaviors, learned experiences, right? Um, so do you have sort of, when you're trying to make these decisions about focus and, and making these sort of decisions about moving the business, do you have any mental models that you use? Is there any sort of, you know, heuristics that you have in terms of making the decisions you're yep. talking about? So, I mean, definitely, definitely play to your strengths. For me, playing to your strengths as an individual, as a business, is a very important aspect of giving yourself the best chance of succeeding. 
And therefore, you really need to know what your strengths are as an individual, as a business, and to really understand what you're good at or what you could become good at so that you can play to those areas. And for us, we were just doing incredibly well in the pet space. We had huge amounts of customer insights. We had done vast amounts of surveying to understand the potential marketplace as well as the actual marketplace. And we were just becoming incredibly good at it, even from a tiny, tiny base. Mm. Okay, so that, that's interesting now because it sounds to me like as I listen to you, it's like it was an easy decision to make. And I know that decisions aren't easy to make. <laughs> they're, they're really hard. Making good decisions is really hard. And I think, you know, objectively, Stephen, we can say that it was a good move for you to yes, focus. We, we very much feel this. that's true. Absolutely. So, but, but making decisions isn't easy. And you've talked a couple of times now about now the data. And I know your co-founder is a CTO. And so Correct. I wonder maybe... You talk to me about what you need to have in place that, that underpins the business to make those sort of good focused decisions. Or the, you know, you talked a bit about data there, for example. So yeah, maybe you could just explore that element of it with me. Yeah, sure. So firstly, data is only useful if you've collected it and it's proprietary to you. That doesn't mean that other data is useless but it's nowhere near as useful as data that is yours, that is, that is unique to you and only you have it. Mm. And, uh, and frankly, we started this conversation about PET long before we launched into PET when we outbound messaged 120,000 PET owners in July of 2016. Remember, we launched in February of 2017, but we had 140-odd communities in the pet space. And so we knew a lot of pet owners. And so we messaged them with a very simple question of if they could design their own perfect pet insurance policy, what would it look like? Amazingly, we got 40,000 responses. <laughs> and out of that, we had enormous insight into how this marketplace behaved. And also the enormous insight that people wanted to talk about it. I mean, this was really like staggering to us. And one in three respondents is unheard of. And, and it gave us another insight, which was that these were people who knew already knew us and they felt engaged with us so much so that they wanted to take the time to write that reply. So, so we learned an enormous amount about that that was proprietary to us, that, that we had and nobody else had. And we have continued to add to that, frankly, deep and rich data set with each and every single customer interaction, regardless of whether somebody buys, regardless of whether somebody claims, regardless of whether somebody renews. We understand that data. We look to learn from it and we look to act as a result of that learning. Hmm. So I hear in that that what's very important is engaging with your customers in a focused way. So you had one very specific question. How, how long did it take you to come up with that question? Was that something you really had to pour over? Because asking great questions is hard as, you know. Right. I, and I, I actually don't, but whenever I re re relay that story, I actually think it's a terrible, terribly worded question. Um, <laughs> if you could design your perfect pet insurance policy, what would it look like? I mean, that's way too many words for a simple question. <laughs> but it really critically resonated with, in the hands of 40,000 recipients. Mm. So much so that they were prepared to take the time to reply. Now, mm. our mistake, we had given them free form 
spaces to reply because we just weren't expecting anything like that number of respondents. So it was a very manual process to dig through it. But that manual process itself was enormously illuminating because it taught it because we hadn't given people forms to tick and and gaps to fill in they were quite emotive in their responses and and we learned a lot from that from the language that people used as well as actually what their response was mm. and, and indeed we learned a lot about how frustrated they were with the existing industry Okay, so yeah, that that's interesting because I mean, a lot of people would offer like kind of very structured metric, maybe sort of you know tick this, yes, yes, no. Yeah. Do you, if you were to do similar thing again, and maybe you have, would you change it in any way? Yeah. Or so have you tried um, it again? Yeah, indeed, we absolutely have. So yes, we have changed it, but not a wholehearted, not a kind of gra- you know drains up change. We do ask certain questions in a more structured way, which enables us to analyze them quicker and and frankly the responses now are much more than 40,000 but we still give the ability for people to write to us and do so easily in a freeform way because we want to understand that emotion we want to understand the language that they use so we can use it to play back to them to show that we've really listened and understood so you'd had these 40,000 you know responses that came through you then have to sort of move through those manually to start understanding and then were you sort of categorizing those in terms of like kind of major themes that you were identifying and then looking to identify those and, and have a, a conversation internally about those? Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. And and we now have a full data team who owns this data and this is their day job to look right. for patterns, to look for trends. Now, at that time, we did not. We didn't have the luxury of that. So it was done by a lot of different people, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also useful. It was very useful to educate the whole business about this space. Because 40,000 is a very large number of freeform responses to, to analyze, it really was a job for a, for a very large number of us. And, and that was frustrating because of the time involved, but also enormously exciting to, to read real data for the first time from real people who were in this space who really had a, something they wanted to say. And they wanted to be listened to and they wanted to be understood. Yeah, that, that's a, being listened to and understood is a, is a, seems to be in short supply at times in, in some of the modern discourse that we're experiencing in the world. And, but listening, when, when someone is speaking and listening to them is, again, a hard thing. So that, that requires a culture in an organization. So you've asked your customers a question, they've given you an answer, but then in sort of the culture that you need to listen to that, have you thought on that? And, and is that actually something you need to breed and work on constantly as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, you'll be amused to know that the microphone that I'm using for recording this particular podcast, turns out we owned one. And why do we own one? Because we do loads of one-on-one customer interviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I stole it from the person who does these one-on-one interviews because clearly in the middle of lockdown, she's not using it. But we do have a team that spend their entire life focused in and around customer experience and understanding customer needs. And during lockdown, they've had to change the way they do that. So much less of it is face-to-face and much more of it is remote. But it doesn't change the fact that it's a critical part of who we are and what we, want and wow. what we do and what we want to be known for doing. So may I ask how big that team is that you have? So, yeah, there are four that. people in that team. There are there are six in the data team, by the way. You didn't ask about that. Yeah, and, that's a good um, question. How many? There's there six in the data team. Good. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we're a little bit more than the 70 odd that we were in December 2018 when we made that decision. In fact, actually, uh, we're just about to take on our 230th member of staff. Wow. So, 
So we've grown a lot and over a hundred of those have joined us since lockdown, interestingly. So there's a hundred people who work for Bought by Many who have a Bought by Many employment contract who I've never met, which is very strange for them and for me, actually, I have to say. Yeah. How are you managing that? Is that is that going better or worse than you expected? So the recruitment process has been much smoother than we had uh, we thought it would be, but it doesn't change the fact that we are a sociable, engaging business. And so we've had to look for very different ways to do that, to change our way of engaging uh, with our crew so that everybody does still feel engaged and does f- still feel that like they've joined a business that they want to be a part of. Well, I think that's maybe an interesting area to sort of you know think about because you're, you're now dealing with some problem solving that, and I'm interested in you know, reframing problems, particularly around talent. And so many people are having to reframe ideas that they have around, you know, the idea that when we hire people, we have to meet them face to face, that we have to be in a an office together. And, you know, this new reality is forcing, you know, these, these ideas and concepts to be challenged. So, you know, is there anything that you might, you think about when it comes to this new growth of, you know, bought by many and hiring people remotely, that has surprised you and you might keep? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I lots of the answer to that question. Let me give you some examples. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, because lots is not a very helpful thing to say. Um, <laughs> so, so as a business, we had always had every Monday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning, an all hands meeting. Um, and that meeting physically took place uh, in our London office. Um, and we recorded it and it was live streamed to the other offices and it was available for download for those who couldn't join at 10 o'clock and clearly those in, in, in the US wouldn't be able to. And in fact, what happened was that everybody in London joined bar no one. Very few people watched it on live streaming and almost nobody downloaded it. And we just accepted that as just how it was. And then we go to lockdown in March and... A lot of people were feeling quite rudderless and uh, unable to work out what they should be doing and how they should be. So we moved to a daily 15 minute long all hands call at four o'clock in the afternoon. Completely optional. And we got ourselves into a rhythm as to what we were going to do each each day, Monday to Friday at four o'clock. And I ran that myself. Uh, in fact, we don't do that every day now. We now are on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday rhythm. But given that it is optional, roughly two-thirds of the business joins every single session. This wow. is staggering to me. This is completely mm-hmm. staggering and and is absolutely something that we will keep in some form post-lockdown uh, when all of this is a dim and distant memory. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a great way for people to engage with a business for me to engage with everybody and to get a heartbeat on on what's going on. So the first few minutes, we just let people chat with each other to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Whether pets, something that someone's read in the newspaper, something that's going on in the world, just chat. And, uh, And then we have a different cycle for Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And then we finish with everyone having the ability to say goodbye to everybody And if there's a birthday in the business, we all sing happy birthday to that person. If there's a new entrant, a new joiner, we start the meeting with introducing that person, their line manager, introduce the person. And the person gets to tell the entire business for three or four sentences who they are and what makes them tick. Mm. This is great. Like, why did we never do this before? I've literally no idea. Yeah. 
And because it's less formal than the thing we did in the Monday, in Monday morning at 10 o'clock, it's much more engaging. That is a, as a good example of something that we have done and will continue to, to do, yeah. regardless of where the world goes. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I, I mean, I hear there's a very natural sort of town square-esque type of experience there. People just gathering together, having a conversation and feeling really engaged. There'll probably be an opportunity for you to focus on that premise, that concept of you know bringing people together and refine it maybe more. But um, if you're, you're having two thirds of the company turn up, my mind obviously goes to that's a lot of people. So yep. how how do you manage that? I mean, you know, what technology are you leveraging, and like how the hell does that happen? Firstly, we everything we do we do on Zoom. Fortunately, 130, 40, 50 people is not a big deal for Zoom. A number of people don't turn the camera on. The majority do, but not all. And and we we do find our way of engaging directly with probably 15 to 20 people each and every time. And some of them are people who have kind of been primed and know that that's going to happen. And sometimes it just happens organically. Mm. Um, I'll give you another example. We have had for a number of years a competition that we run in January to predict the number of sales we'll make in January. Uh, January is an important month in the pet, uh, the pet space. It's an important month in the insurance space. Um, and so bring those two things together in the pet insurance space becomes a very important month. Um, lots and lots and lots to do. And, and a good way for us to help people understand the criticality of the month for us, but also to, to share the excitement around what's going on. We run a sweepstake of, of can you guess how many sales we have, we're going to have in January. And we have a trophy for a bit of a laugh at the end of it. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that we had done in the past was it became quite an office-centric thing. So it became quite like, you know, the Hayward Teeth office would do one thing and London would do something else and maybe the Birmingham crew wouldn't quite get so engaged. And, you know, in Stockholm, it's a UK thing, so we won't do it at all. <laughs> and we've just completely changed that. So now it, we have a we had a, a very nicely produced sheet with everybody's predictions on it, and mm. every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we started with this and we tracked how we were doing compared to the predictions. And when we passed certain people's predictions, you know, we put a line through them so that we knew that we'd already passed that, and we just made it a more engaging, amusing, interesting experience. And and we'll hang on to that as well. And what has the feedback been from from the people engaging that? Why why have they said they enjoy it? Why are the guys in Stockholm making these things and trying to win the trophy now? What because they, you they can that? see that they are uh, that they are contributing to it. So mm. our Swedish business had a phenomenal January, and that they can see that they themselves are directly impacting on the overall result for the business. Mm. Yeah, and given that it hasn't been around for very long, the scale of their impact is disproportionate to that. I think I'd, I'd like to sort of just come back a little bit, if I may, to, to focus as a topic. And we talked a bit about this sort of proposition redevelopment and how the technology helped you do that. But I mean, in talking about Bought by Many, um, I mean, I came to you by knowing um, a mutual friend, Andy Rear, and Andy's work at Munich Re Digital Partners, and Digital Partners is a key, um, you know, backer, right? Bought by many, yep. and 
many ways you look at bought by many, not realize effectively you were categorized as a fintech or an yep. insure tech, right? But but that's not something that you really put front and center or something like what I've seen. So I just wonder about, yeah, do you agree with being called a fintech and why you don't put that front and center? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, interesting observation. No one's ever really asked me that before, uh, but it is completely accurate. Uh, the reason that we don't do it, and I will say that it wasn't a conscious reason, it was intuitive to start with, but it's now conscious, is that no consumer ever bought anything from a business that, that described themselves as X. They buy because they like a product or they like the experience or they have been recommended. And uh, and specifically, it's not at all relevant for us to describe to pet owners and pet parents that we're a fintech business because the reality is for 95% of people, that will be a meaningless descriptor. And for those who those 5% who do know what it is will probably go, so what? Like, why is that going to make any difference to me when I buy my pet insurance policy or why when my pet falls on well and I've got to make a claim? Why, why, is that, why is that going to make any difference to me? So, so yes, we are a fintech business. In fact, the business predates the expression insuretech. So that may partly explain why we don't really use that either. <laughs> But we mostly describe ourselves as being a consumer-centric business, which is tech-enabled. Hmm. That's an interesting definition. And I um, I know I always fumble around with fintech and insuretech and which one to call which and who what. And yep. um, I, I wonder, actually, if this relentless focus that you've kind of talked about, this moving from the main first premise of Bought by Many, then moving towards pet insurance or, or focusing on pet insurance, maybe a better way to describe it, and the fact that you've just kept focused on what the business is supposed to be doing is actually maybe why that's that's part of it. And that's certainly why I hear when I read you and listen to you and I listen to what you've seen. But I suppose then I, I look at what you've you've achieved and you've gone from a business focused on many to a focused business on pet insurance, but you've grown as a result. You've grown quite considerably, right? And you'll continue to do that. So, you know, if you're advising, you know, other young folk coming into the industry as a young folk you know whatever that means now um <laughs> you know what would you be He's saying I'm, start, I'm not quite sure what well, that means I, anyway let's let's I'm, let's gloss I, well let's gloss I, over that and I move know. on <laughs> oh, let, i know bloody hell i'm i'm 39 and I'm, I'm starting to realize i'm no longer young anymore yeah so i suppose back to my point was kind of this question of yeah would you recommend somebody starting out to try and get focused early or yeah. to be yes. sort of relaxed yes Work out how to be great in one thing before you try and be great in many. And and question whether actually being great in many is ever right. Yeah. I, I It is not clear to me that any business can be great in many, many things. I just don't know that that's possible. But it's a hard thing to do, right? Because you said at the beginning of the show that you a guy doesn't like saying no to things. So do you think yes. there's an inherent tension at the center of somebody who is entrepreneurial somebody who wants to try new things because that's why you start a new business but at the same time needs to restrict yourself and feeling yeah. like that sort of that fear of missing out yes maybe just talk to that like that that inattention that's going on like to be clear i i said i don't like to say no it doesn't mean i don't say no <laughs> but not liking to say no is because i'm i'm optimistic and positive at my core and the word no feel, feels counter to that. It feels contrary to this uh, desire to always be able to say yes, because the answer is always yes. But actually, often I find that saying no is quite empowering as well. 
So, you know, and, and people have learned that the best way in by many the best way is to look at many options and to narrow down those options until you arrive at the right answer, which doesn't require anyone to say yes or no, because they themselves are using the data and the insights to be able to come up with that, that, that decision, that outcome. And, and rarely, rarely is there a, uh, is there an intuitive decision making required? Rarely is there a, a situation where there isn't proper information to enable you to make the right decision mm. in business anyway. Yeah, I suppose it's about then finding that, that information, that data or creating the platforms yep. and the infrastructure can help with that. And, you know, I heard back to having a co-founder yep. who's a CTO must help in many ways. Correct. Correct. And we're very different. We're very different. And that's also very important. Uh, yeah. In fact, we have a we have a leadership team that are made up of a bunch of people for whom it is very hard to find what makes us tick together. But we really do. Mm. Different backgrounds, different experience sets, you know, different histories in, in, in business and in, in academic life. And, and that's created a, a, a leadership team that has a very uh, diverse outlook. And was that a deliberate choice? Absolutely. And how do you do that? So how do you do that? You do that for looking for areas where you don't have different thinking. So I'll give you a, a very good example. Uh, about two and a half years ago, we realized we needed a CFO. We'd never had a CFO as a business before, but we were growing and needed to create a leadership team position for a chief financial officer. The business at the time was run by four guys. And that was just because they had been the right people at the time. And it was very clear to me that other than the leadership team, we were a business that was 50-50 male, female, and that had been, that had been the right answer. And, but at the leadership team, that was not the case. And, and so I set out to find a female CFO who had insurance experience. Hen's teeth. <laughs> um, yes. And I met 32 people before I found the right person. And and did some very strange things to try and find the right person, including putting myself in some very unusual situations to enable me to come into contact with people who were different from me. To enable me, you got to you got to you got to tell us about those strange things, Stephen. <laughs> okay, please. I will yeah. give you one, uh, but I think it, it's it's the most public one. So it's uh, International Women's Day. I think it's March the eighth, and it was two thousand and eighteen. Um, and I went to a talk given by Nikki Morgan, who was the chair of the Treasury Select Committee at the time at the Law Society, um, focused on women in leadership. A thousand people in the room, 997 of them were, were female. And uh, I got to the question time. Um, I put my hand up and I was asked, uh, I was invited to ask a question almost certainly because I was one of the only men in the room. Um, <laughs> and, and I put my hand, I stood up and in front of everybody, I said, it's not really a question directly to Nikki Morgan. It's more a question to everybody else in this room, but I'm the chief exec of an insurance startup and I'm looking for a female CFO. And if anybody in the room would be interested in applying for the role or know somebody who'd be interested in applying for the role, please come and see me. I'll be standing at the back of the room afterwards. And my question to Nikki is, how should I find the right person for this role? And sat down. And 
so I stood at the back of the room feeling very, very, very sad because I was completely <laughs> ignored until Nikki Morgan, <laughs> until Nikki Morgan herself walked up to me. Um, and she said to me, that was one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen anybody do. Please, please let me know as and when you find the right person. And, and she uh, introduced me to a recruitment firm who do female recruitment. As it happens, I already knew them and, and said that she was very personally uh, interested in finding out. Nothing to do with that event, but uh, a couple of months later, I found the right person, uh, Louisa Burrill, who I'm delighted joined us as our CFO and has been phenomenal for us. Um, and yeah. that night that Louisa accepted the job, uh, I, I emailed Nikki Morgan to tell her that we'd found the right person. And within half an hour, she replied and said, I'm delighted. I was absolutely sure you would find the right person. Good luck to you. Mm. And it was very nice. And, mm. and, and that is I mean, really coming back to... To the question, it's really about doing diverse things to find diverse thinking. And it's pay, it paid off enormously for us and hopefully for Louisa too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like, I like that story. Thank you for sharing the story. I had never heard that before. So um, I'll, I'll take that one. It's very interesting. I think, um, I think there is now much, a much greater wealth of female talent. It's still not a parity, but there is still a, a great deal of female talent coming through, which is, which is fantastic to see. And um, I like the idea that, you know, you've got to summon a bit of courage to do, to do things differently and to overcome what was maybe some of the inertia that's in, in sort of traditional systems. That brings me back actually to the question about values. And I know we've talked about this before, mm -hmm. because I hear in that, you know, you had a sense of value, which was that, you know, I needed different set of perspectives around me. You'd recognize that it wasn't quite right. You said a moment ago as well that you you identified places where you are thinking the same, maybe, right? If I got mm -hmm. that right. And yep. and through that, that's like a warning sign to you that maybe you need to challenge that a bit yep. and, and look for some different perspectives. So, but that requires all of what you're talking about isn't just down to you, Stephen, is it? Because you've got Absolutely not. lots of people in your business, right? Yep. So you've got to hopefully have that, those values throughout the business. So how do you create the values and what are your thoughts on focusing on values? So we, as a business, we have five values. I'm sure many companies have values. Um, um, the first is to show you care. The second is to do the right thing. Uh, the third is to work in partnership. Um, the fourth is to dare to think big. Uh, and the fifth is to be tenacious and be fast. So... Those are our values. And we try very, very, very hard to integrate them into everything that we do. So we use them as part of the recruitment process. We use them as part of the assessment process. We use them as part of the rewards process. Uh, I'll give you another example. I talked earlier on about how we had daily all-hands calls at the early stages of lockdown. And there were five uh, five days in the week. We had, therefore, five calls every week. And uh, and I would focus on a value, a different value, every day of the week mm. uh, and try and bring it to life. So Wednesday, middle of the week, working partnership was our middle value. Um, and so uh, the Wednesday, uh, Wednesday 15-minute slot had already a natural subject that we could mm. work around to uh, to bring content and, and and relevance to all of the participants that was all around partnership. And therefore, we often used to use it to talk about third parties that we worked with or were hoping to work with. Mm. I find that I mean, you, you say everybody has five values. Companies do have values, but 
you know, you can often ask people what the values are at the companies and, and not everybody can recall them. Um, so it is, I heard that you, you do need to reinforce them. We come back to our, our favorite words for today's podcast is focus on them. Um, you know, when I work with new founders, like of like startups, seed stage, and I'm saying, look, you need to have values. You need to integrate that as soon as you can to, to the way that you're growing your business. They think, oh yeah, of course, I'm going to do that. And I'll just go and write them down. But it's actually really hard. So how did you choose those five? What was the process? Was it something you could just do straight away? Or No, absolutely not. So we used to have eight. And I realized that we hadn't integrated them in the business when um, I met someone who'd been in the business for well over a year and he couldn't even remember how many we had, let alone recall what they were. So that was already like writing on the wall for me, like we've got to do something differently. The process we went through was we liked the first eight. We thought they they talked to who we were, but they clearly didn't talk to everybody because they couldn't remember who, how many we had, let alone what they were. Mm. So, so we built um, a whole day uh, workshop together off-site. Can you imagine we ever did such a thing? Amazing. Uh, all in the same room. Um, shook hands, shook hands with strangers. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Drawn from people across the entire business, senior and junior, from all parts of the business. And we said, here are the eight. You know who we are. You know what we're trying to achieve as a business. What is the right outcome for uh, a set of values? Not for five values or four values or six values, but what is the right outcome of a set of values that speaks to us Uh, is something that we would be very happy to be known for, even though we don't intend to actually use these externally. But but if they became external, we would be able to explain why they're relevant. And uh, and critically, are things that you would, as as an individual, feel uh, uh, that you could get behind. Mm. Um, And that was the process we went through. Um, and actually, it wasn't as simple as a day. It took it took several days to do that. But uh, but those who were there um, very much uh, uh, still talk about the experience two more years later um, to to say that this was a very collaborative but critically open minded uh, set of set of mm. workshops that enabled them to get to the answer. And, and I had some involvement in it, but not much. So how do you do that? How do you facilitate that? Do you have like a professional from the outside come in or do you get like representative business? Because that's a really difficult process of refining yes. that. So, we, so yeah. we chose not to use somebody external for that. We have done for other things. But we felt that that this was very much about us and not about somebody doing to us. Um, and so we gave different people different objectives. We gave people roles, if you like, to fulfill that we drew out of a hat, you know, so no one got given one just because it was their natural skill set. Are there CEOs that, or other leaders or mentors that you really respect that you would talk about, like some that you would point other people to look at as well? So oh, this is a really hard question because I always read in the Sunday papers that when they do an interview of some business leader and they say, here's XYZ individual who's been my mentor for many years and and uh, and he is my go-to person whenever I have an issue. And I always think, huh, that's really interesting. I just, I, because I, that's not how I operate as an individual. So I, I, I operate differently. So most people will tell you, I'm very, very, very good at asking them for help or assistance or, or a favor. Um, and for often for their time as well. Um, 
because I don't think I know very much at all, but I know people who do know. Um, and, uh, and so, but, but my problem with this, like needing to have a person to put down on this, like, is because I don't have a person. I probably have 50 or 60 people who I lean on from time to time, um, with some, for some input or help or, or advice, but never one person, um, on their own. And, and maybe some of that's an in, a response to this requirement for diverse thinking but also it's a, a recognition i think that uh, for me the to be successful you have to be many 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 different things and and no one person can be that as the individual nor as the mentor mm. um, and so like being happy to reach out to people and ask for help and critically being there for when they reach out to you for asking your help has been enormously valuable to me and to any of them who are listening to this thank you very much you know who you are <laughs> <laughs> well i love that but it does make me think straight away i'm like well you said you're really good at asking for help so do you have like a you know a heuristic or a methodology or something that you've learned that makes it easier to ask for help I don't know. I just say please and thank you. I don't know. I'm not quite sure where <laughs> where that conversation goes. Um, no, I think that I think that there are a lot of people out there who are very happy to help. I think that that is an inherent human trait. That you know, mm. if you ask for something, nine times out of ten people are going to go like, "I will try." Mm. You know, I can't guarantee it, but I will try, and and I do it really often, like really often, and. And I don't know, it's just, it's become innate, but I'm sure that that for others, it's just a, a, a natural way of being as well. And this is just, this is just completely how we operate as, as a, as a race, as a, as a type of people that we are just yeah. happy to, to reach out to others and, and, and to get their input. Yeah. Well, I think that's lovely. I, I don't think it's entirely normal for people. Well, all the time for people to think that helping other people is right. Well, and maybe I'll challenge myself on that. I do think inherently human beings are kind and considerate people. We are seeing a lot of maybe breakdown in discourse, you know, through the course of maybe, you know, the, the recent elections in the US are a great example and maybe the way that just people are becoming polarized. But I mean, I, I, I think in asking for help and asking others for help, you, you have to understand the golden rule, which is that you know, we have to help other people as yeah. well. You know, otherwise it becomes like a, you know, there's a, the great book from Adam Grant, Give and Take. And there's, you know, there's much, you know, literature about this and foundational teachings from Buddhism and, and Stoicism and such. And it's like this idea of, you know, helping other other individuals and being able to alleviate suffering. And and that can come in many different forms. So um, I wouldn't actually maybe, un, you know, think that's a little thing, Stephen, that you're actually prepared to help other people because I think that's probably the the big key thing and you know it's not not everybody does that so that's good to hear i suppose then sort of coming sort of towards the end of our time together today i'd like to ask you then i mean if we couldn't answer some specific people that do you have any books that maybe you know something you're either reading at the moment yep. or ones that have really inspired you and you can name three or as one two however many you would like so do you have any books you'd share with us so so you forewarned me um so i've brought them aha excellent okay um but i can't I, the problem i've got is i can't do three <laughs> 
So, so I've okay, limited okay. myself to six. Um, and I've divided them into two groups of three. Um, right. So three modern books that I've read in the last year and three okay. all-time classics that tell you a little bit about me in the process. Wonderful. Okay, let's do this. Okay, so three old books that I have read. I'm not really into reading books more than once. Life's too short, too many books. But three books that I love and I recommend that everyone has read at some point in their lives. Each one tells you something about me, which I hadn't realized until I, until I pulled them out for this conversation. <laughs> so this is Sebastian Fawkes of Fool's Alphabet. Uh, Sebastian Fawkes is a really lovely writer who I've had the pleasure of meeting and, and have heard him re read from uh, other books of his. So, so what this book tells you about is my love of travel. There are 26 chapters in it. Each one starts with the letter of an alphabet and, the, and that letter uh, corresponds to a place in the world. So I've just opened uh, a K and K is Kowloon in Hong Kong. Now, oh, the wow. other thing that's interesting about this book is that it's not told in the right order. So you don't know the story until you've read all 26 chapters and then your brain puts the story together. Uh, it's a really, really lovely concept and it really works, but you have got to read the book in one wow. go. Um, I mean, it's in like, not like stop and start over a long period of time, uh, yeah. but it's really nice. Great writer. I've read every single thing he's written and, and this is my favorite of his. Wow, that's fantastic. And I think at this time of, you know, no travel, yeah. reading travel books and such is, is a great joy at the moment. Here's another one. Another one of my go-to authors, uh, William Boyd, Brazzaville Beach. I have lots of William Boyd books that I could have picked and recommended, but this particular one tells you about my love of maths. So I am an actuary, as you, as you might know, and I studied maths at university, but heavily, heavily weaved into this book is a whole pile of maths, which if you're not, if you're not a maths person, you probably will just completely skip. It's not a critical part of the book, but it's very nicely weaved into the story. Okay, wonderful. I'm going to keep going. Please do, absolutely. A much less well-known book, uh, 12 Bar Blues. So 12 Bar Blues, it's actually a really interesting story, which I won't spoil by telling you how it plays out. But it's, it's all told around jazz music. And I am a massive jazz fan. That is fantastic. We've got, so we've got like your love of travel, love of maths, and love of jazz. So that's brilliant. And those three books, are these, and these are books that you've returned to regularly or, or semi-regularly? Oh, I wouldn't say regularly because I, 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 I love reading. But as I said, this life's too short and there are too many books. So it's hard to, to explain that I go back to them often, but they are books I recommend. And then I thought I would bring th three completely current books, very recent books that I've also enjoyed, Please. which are just very different from those. Mm. So Camilla Shamsi's Home Fire, I don't know if you've read this. It's a really interesting book about, about culture uh, in uh, in the UK and the integration of families into uh, of, of families with a foreign or overseas history into British culture, I, I went to a book a one off book club because they were reading this book because I enjoyed the book so much. I found a book club that was talking about it. Wonderful, uh, Elif Shafek, ten minutes thirty eight seconds in this strange world, um, and the first are the ten the final ten minutes of her life and what goes through her mind in the final 10 minutes of her life. It's a very evocative, oh, wow. it's a very, mm. uh, very sensual book and really a, an interesting read. And the, a, a second half, less, less interesting. I, but I thought the first half was wonderful. 
really wonderful. Mm. Wow, 10, 10 minutes and 38 seconds. Um, very and then the final one, um, a really unusual choice that my book club, I'm um, uh, in a boys' book club that we read. This is the book we finished at the last book club. It's called The Liar by a, a contemporary Israeli writer called uh, Ayelet Gundagoshen. Um, and it has the premise in it that we all lie and we all lie a lot. The book is based on two lies that grow out of all proportion uh, and become very uh, defining for the two main characters in it. But but it also talks about, it's a, it's a novel, but it also talks a lot about small lies that we all tell to each other, to ourselves all day to get through life. Um, yes. Because without doing that, we'd find things much, much harder. And it's a really nice concept because, of course, it's true and a, a very easy read and a, like a very, a very interesting story. Wonderful to see you come alive with those books recommendations. I am a massive book fan, so it's wonderful to hear you do that. So we'll we'll put show notes links to all of those as well. But you also mentioned about, I mean, as a busy CEO running a big business, um, it's hard to read so much. So, but I mean, you talked about a book club. I run a book club or have run a book club. Is a book club really helpful for you? And is it something you recommend to people if they're looking to get so, going? So it's you know, definitely enormously helpful to me because it does two things. Um, a, it stops me re only reading the books my wife recommends. Um, <laughs> and critically, it does something else to me, which is that the book club I'm in uh, is full of a group of guys that I have very little in common with and wouldn't, very, wouldn't really come across uh, on a daily basis. And they challenge me to read books that genuinely I wouldn't pick up. So we meet every other month and every other month we, read, we have to read two books, I mean, which is a big stretch for me. One fiction, one non-fiction. And I never read non-fiction. So it's been amazingly interesting uh, to read non-fiction as frequently as six a year. Wow. And, and some have been great and some much less so. And, and really interesting subjects that honestly have been eye-opening for me that I would not have done otherwise. And I love our, you know, our Sunday night Zoom catch-ups where we debate the books that we've read and then have a massive argument about what we're going to read next. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm a great advocate of a book club as well. I can rec I can share a similar experience to you. So you get like different people's opinion because they, they see the world, they see the books in an entirely different way that you do. And that's really great as well. And it helps you also, you know, become more confident in your own view, but also have your own view challenged. Um, so great. I, I will give everyone a tip. Don't make the same mistake I made. I joined a book club where a few of the members are retired and they have a lot more time to read than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, do you know what? It is, it, it is a, you know, it, it feels like a bit of an undertaking, but it does force you into the, to doing it, but that's good. That's a good, good tip. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a real joy talking to you and finding about your journey and some of the lessons and things that you've discovered along the way, sharing those wonderful books with us as well. Um, so thank you again for taking the time out. Will, thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed it too. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Stephen as much as I did. It was great to see him come so alive with his book recommendations there at the end. On reflection of this conversation, I think one thing really stuck with me, and that was the this concept of ideas and execution. And it's quite rare, actually, to find somebody brave enough 
to be creative and have an idea. And then even rarer still to have somebody capable of executing on that idea. And the process of focus is something that I think helps when we have to iterate and innovate. It's natural that we explore, that we have a wider focus until we can identify that thing that we want to focus on. And once we choose it, and once we focus, it becomes so much easier to execute if you're that way inclined. And yeah, I think it's important to remember that Stephen is executing very successfully on this bought by many premise. And it'll be interesting to watch that evolution if they can continue to ideate, continue to innovate while also executing and delivering for their customers. So I'll be watching with interest, wishing them the very best. And I'll be thanking you, as always, for joining us again on this show. A big thank you to the production team here at Talent Equals in Andrea Moreskin and Samantha Smart. Without their support, none of this would be possible. And of course, a huge thank you to you and the guests, because without all of you, it would be impossible for us to do this work. And wherever you are in the world, I wish you a wonderful morning, day or evening. And I'll look forward to you joining us again on the podcast, Talent Equals. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.